Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. The NHS is there to serve us, not the British people there to serve the NHS. Four. The special relationship is a phrase I have really disliked, abhorred for a good quarter of a century. Three. When journalists stop questioning, civic society and freedom of thought ceases to function. Two. The Brexit wars are still being fought and they infect everything and they have infected, I think, COVID reporting. We have liftoff. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. So this was the week when sceptical journalists who don't toe the line were put on show trial. Journalists who analyse and interrogate data, who weigh the benefits of anti-Covid restrictions against their immediate and massive economic and human costs who question endless lockdown. Such journalists are being reprimanded, their characters besmirched, their sanity questioned by ministers, their parliamentary henchmen and so-called colleagues across the print and broadcast media. But what is the function of journalism if not to question? Why be a reporter if all you do is simply repeat? In many regions, Britain's already vaccinated most over 80s. We're now starting on the over 70s too. The UK is on track to deliver 15 million first doses by mid-February. We're in a league of our own. No other major economy comes close. Yes, Covid is real and nasty. Tragically, it's caused too many people to die before their time. Yet the death rate during this second wave, compared to previous winters, has been wildly and irresponsibly exaggerated. Why do we do this, Alison? Why does our political and media class beat the drum of relentless negativity. Well, put it this way, Halligan, I'm, I'm keeping away from matches and uh, stacks of logs because I think I'm one of the people due to be burnt at the stake. <laughs> <laughs> the witch hunt. She's a witch, she's a witch. Burn the witch, burn the witch. Yeah, many distinguished colleagues, Peter Hitchens, Julia Hartley Brewer, that renegade bunch on the planet, normal rocket. Apparently, we're all... Um, endangering the public. The Guardian says a reckoning is due with lockdown sceptics in politics and the media who fermented public distrust of official advice and encouraged dangerous risk-taking. And we've got this Conservative MP, strangers for a Conservative, Neil O'Brien, who is going around rather aggressively pointing the finger. He called me a COVID sceptic, Liam. It's quite hard to be sceptical about COVID when your entire family's had it, I must say never been sceptical about COVID, just as you know, some of the measures which we know are causing increasing distress every single day. And can I say two things here? First of all, the case for the authorities' point of view is made by almost every broadcast outlet, every scientist almost, every pollster, every university, fanatically supporting the official advice without any nuance or challenge Yet you and I, Liam, we know the horrifying costs of lockdown to the young, the old, the lonely, the disabled. Is it irresponsible and dangerous to point out that Bristol University has just predicted 560,000 excess deaths as a result of the prolonged recession that will be caused by lockdown? And, And I'm going to be very personal here for a minute because... Over the last few months, I get daily 
emails and letters from Telegraph readers and listeners, and I cannot get them out of my head, Liam. I go to bed thinking about them. I wake up. I was crying earlier reading an email from a lady whose mother has dementia and has just hasn't been able to be seen or helped. And I feel sometimes I am swimming in a sea of sorrow, and I will make no apology for sticking up for those people. And it's not just journalists making this stuff up, irresponsibly challenging official advice. We have never on Planet Normal indulged in fringe conspiracy theories. What we do is we try to present the point of view of people for whom lockdown is causing immense long-term suffering. Sorry if I sound too self-justifying, but I just feel that it's totally wrong to crush these alternative points of view. I believe that the 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 deaths and the injury that will come from these policies, people who are affected by them are equally valid. We've had a record number of deaths this week, 1,610 new coronavirus deaths. That's the highest daily rise of the pandemic. We're not underestimating that or the pressure on NHS staff. What we are saying is that the harm goes on. This week we saw a report from the Royal College of Psychologists, which was about the unbelievable harm being done to the mental health of children and young people. You're entirely justified to say all this, Alison, because for listeners who aren't on social media, you take a huge amount of stick from people for speaking out and for what you write. And I agree with you. The case for ever tighter lockdown is made by the mainstream broadcasters relentlessly morning, noon and night on a loop. Yet we know because we do a lot of research and because we're in touch with lots and lots of people who contact us that there are many, many scientists out there, distinguished scientists, world leading epidemiologists who we've cited on Planet Normal, who we've had as guests on Planet Normal, who believe a much less restrictive form of lockdown, an age-segregated lockdown, particularly as the vaccine is rolled out, would be far, far better for society as a whole because the damage of lockdown would be far less and the age-stratified approach to shielding would be just as good or very close at saving lives. And we have to look at and repeatedly interrogate the data. And that's what we do. And we are told relentlessly this second wave is upon us. It's far worse than the spike back in April. But if you look at the continuous mortality investigation that the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries set up, it's kind of my bedtime reading, (laughs) it shows 73,000 excess deaths from the start of this pandemic in March to the end of December. Yeah, that's a lot of excess deaths in the year of 2020. Yet over 60,000 of those excess deaths occurred in the first wave last spring, so 60,000 of the 73,000. What we're seeing now is a nasty winter spike that is alarming and does involve deaths, obviously, but it isn't much worse than an ordinary flu year this particular winter. That is what the data shows. And we had this moment where broadcasters were reporting and a lot of the press, oh my God, excess deaths, are the worst since 1945, because that was the calendar year changed from 2020 to 2021. And then the data came out a few weeks later. But that was reflecting excess deaths, which were overwhelmingly the spike back in April. So I don't deny COVID and nor do you. I've had it. You've had it. We know people have been affected by it. We know people who have died of, with or from COVID. What we are doing is questioning, questioning, questioning. And you know what, Alison, when journalists stop questioning, civic society and freedom of thought ceases to function. No, I absolutely agree. And I and I suppose what we're wondering now is what's the exit strategy? What's the way out? Because we're having, as you said, many people in their 80s now fantastically have had the vaccine. And yet now the headlines are granny still can't hug her kids. So you're thinking, really, by today, we should have 4.5 million people vaccinated. The pledge is to vaccinate the 14 million most vulnerable by the 15th of February. 
by which time Matt Hancock has admitted the mortality rate is expected to fall by 88% once that cohort, which includes all adults over 70, have had a first dose of the vaccine. And by that point, Liam, we have to, as Professor Chris Whitty has suggested, we have to start living with the risk, which would be a normal risk, that people run from flu, except what we're seeing now is the goalposts this week being moved again. There are reports that lockdown measures could last beyond Easter, despite this extraordinary, miraculous rollout of the vaccine. Boris is said to be targeting Good Friday as the earliest date for significant lifting of the restrictions. So the review's gone from mid-February now to Easter. Yep, and we've still got 9 million children and young people being denied in education, vital mixing with their friends. I mean, you and I have both got young adult children. I won't breach their privacy, but this is a very, very testing time for parents with kids at school or kids at university. Many of them are despairing. We've had uh, emails, haven't we, into Planet Normal? Many, many emails. There's a lot of despair out there. This lockdown, I think is hitting us as a nation psychologically far, far harder than the first lockdown back in spring. It's partly due to the weather. It's partly because this has gone on so long. And every day of lockdown costs lives. Every day of lockdown costs money. Every day of lockdown puts us deeper and deeper in the economic hole, which in turn has effects on lives and livelihoods. It is not inhumane to question lockdown. I think, I think it's inhumane not to question lockdown. Yes, when I see that blood on your hands for doing what we're doing, I think, do do, do the people who are ignoring all, all the people we're hearing from, they, uh, they, not, they don't have blood on their hands, do they? So just we got an update this week from Claire, not her real name, our, our, our GP in London. By the way, Liam, let's just dwell on the fact that the doctor activists, who are mainly Corbynists, they're out on all the airwaves giving their point of view. But all of our sources in the NHS, the doctors, the nurses, the surgeons, the consultants, the administrators, they have to be anonymous because they're too frightened to speak out. So let's think about that, that they work for an organisation that's paid for by taxpayers' money, but they're too scared to tell the British people what they feel is going on. But Claire, who is uh, helping with the rollout of the vaccine, she actually said that it's still a bit patchy because the supplies have been a bit delayed, but it's generally going very well. But Claire's increasingly frustrated that even the vaccine is not leading the government to show us a way out. And she said to me, so many suicides in young adults who are giving up their lives so a 90-year-old gets a few more months. Patients have been denied their basic human right to a family life for 10 months. Short-term emergency measures were understandable, but this is now a long-term policy. So this is a very, very experienced GP who is dealing with all the collateral damage amongst her parents. Now, we saw Public Health England, Liam. I think the government has woken up this week to this mental health crisis, and you're going to like this. Public Health England launched Better Health, Every Mind Matters, a campaign to encourage people to seek help when their mental health is deteriorating. Well, as you know, we're not allowed to use the NHS because we've got to stay home. So I'm not quite sure what help is available. But they did say that there was a, a free NHS approved mind plan, which suggests that one way to boost your mood is spending time with loved ones. <laughs> see, any, see any drawbacks with that plan? <laughs> what genius, what genius. Something that I know Planet Normal listeners really rely on is listening from George, who is our NHS insider. So this is the Velma moment. We're going to go deep into data now, right? Hey, Scoops! Hey, Scoops! <gasps> Off you go. I don't know if I should say this now, but one listener did point out that Velma and Shaggy at one point were an item. Did you do no. that? That's prob- well, yeah, that that's changes bit- everything. <laughs> that does change everything. I'm going to have to turn into Fred. <laughs> Where's my neckerchief? <laughs> did he have a white jumper with a blue neckerchief? I think he did. Yeah. I think he's a bit too smooth for you, really. But anyway, <laughs> smoothie pants. So I thought we'd um, we'd continue what we've been doing and and put to George 
one of the scariest headlines of the week to get his take on it. So this week, Sir Simon Stevens, who's the chief executive of NHS England, said a patient is being admitted to hospital with coronavirus every 30 seconds. Yeah, I heard that was on the Andrew Marr show, wasn't it, on Sunday? It was. It sounds really, really frightening. So I said to George, what do you think about that? And George said, completely disingenuous because he's including in-hospital diagnoses in that number. There were just under 2,000 in-hospital diagnoses in the previous 24 hours and just over 1,000 new admissions with COVID. Liam, can we just take a minute to explain this to listeners? Basically, people are admitted to hospital with other illnesses and then they are given a test immediately. And if they test positive, they will be put down as a COVID admission. If they test positive after seven to eight days, that means they've been infected in the hospital. And as we know, that's that's an alarming percentage of that. But but George said about this one patient being admitted every 30 seconds, if you add the in-hospital diagnoses and the new people coming in with COVID, you do get two new COVID patients every minute. But technically, it's not true to say they are all admissions. And furthermore, this is great, Furthermore, there were also 1,789 COVID hospital discharges in that same 24-hour period. That's around 2,500 discharges per day in the last week, a total of almost 16,500 COVID patients discharged from hospital, which is one every 40 seconds. George says they just cannot bring themselves to provide the positive balancing narrative. And what I want to ask you, Halligan, is what conceivable justification is there for alarming the British people during a mental health crisis more than is absolutely necessary? What are they doing? Just to say before I answer that, George is your source within NHS England We don't disclose his or her name. George has access to the NHS England database. George feeds you information, answers your questions. Mm -hmm. You then bring the answers to the listeners of Planet Normal. We know George. We've checked his or her bona fides. So that's where we're getting this information from. What is the motive, Alison? The motive, it's hard to ascribe motive, I think, We can't always assume bad faith. If you go down that road, then I think you take a corrosive view and a non-constructive view of human nature. There will be many people who are putting around this narrative because they genuinely believe it's the right thing to do and they genuinely believe they're on the right side of history. There must be some people, though, who are exercising control, who are using the narrative because they think the public needs to be frightened into complying with lockdown. This is what happens when the state, I think, gets too powerful. It becomes quite intoxicating Mm. for the people involved. And it doesn't take many people to become intoxicated in that way for policies to become more and more restrictive. I'm not saying that's the general state of mind of people who are leading us through this pandemic, but I'd say it's the state of mind of some of them and certainly some key people. That's why I think we need political leadership. We need to start talking about hope. We need to start understanding and committing to when we can come out of lockdown, subject, as we say, as we acknowledge, to certain medical outcomes. Because unless you start giving people hope, the compliance will become less anyway, Mm. and then the news will have to become even more frightening, Mm. and it will be a vicious circle. So I actually think Planet Normal and those of us in the media who are questioning this, we are getting personal brickbats, aren't we? We are suffering because of this. We are taking reputational collateral damage. But as we've said on Planet Normal, when history looks back on this episode, I think it will be people who are arguing for a more balanced approach who will be seen to be on the right side of the argument. Do you want a numpty of the week this week? Are we going to get it? <laughs> numpty of the week, go on then. If so, can I nominate the, the first minister of my own beloved Wales, 
Mark, uh, Mark Drake, Drayford. Mark, Mark Drayford, who, who I, I have to say to universal incredulity, uh, explained to the Today programme that Wales would be holding back doses of the Pfizer vaccine until February because, uh, oh, you don't want vaccinators to be left standing about with nothing to do. And uh, although it was, you know, of course it was hilarious, but 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 there was something there, Liam, about, you know, that, that idea of that the system works perfectly as long as you don't factor in the needs of patients. I mean, Wales has a has a rather elderly population and has suffered disproportionately because, you know, tragically, a lot of, of older people in Wales have have died and are at great risk. So clearly the priority must be to get as many jabs into as many arms as is humanly possible. But no, the first minister was saying that the patient's need mustn't be allowed to to interfere with the smooth process of the system. And and I do think there's a greater truth there about the NHS. And we've had a lot of feedback. We'll be reading that in some of the emails later on from people who feel that we, we pay for the NHS. We're told it's our NHS but very much we get the feeling it's actually their NHS and that that, that balance needs to be readjusted now and, and, and tipped back that the NHS is there to serve us, not the British people there to serve the NHS. Motherhood. It's a seriously full-on job. Late nights, early mornings, a difficult client. Hi, I'm Claire Newell. I'm the investigations editor at The Telegraph. I've spent my career flying around the world investigating corruption. Last year, my latest adventure was having our baby boy. And as I started to emerge from all the sleep deprivation, I started to question, was I going to be able to continue my career while looking after our boy? To find out, I made a podcast called The Juggling Act. I'll be interviewing politicians, chief execs, celebs to ask them how having a baby has affected their careers, their relationships and their lives. Yes. To find the show, search for The Juggling Act from wherever you normally find your podcasts and click subscribe. Now, last week's stirway on our rocket of right thinking was the chairman of the 1922 committee of Tory backbenchers, Sir Graham Brady. Many of you admired the wise, measured yet courageous words from the member for Altrincham and Sale West, and thanks for all your emails. This week, to mark the inauguration of Joe Biden and the end of Donald Trump's presidency, for now at least, we asked a former UK ambassador to Washington to join us on our capsule of common sense. Sir Christopher Mayer served in the US from 1997 to 2003, a period of enormous change. I started by asking him about Trump. What kind of president was he and what's his legacy? Well, I think his legacy will rest on the record number of Republican voters who wanted him to continue as president of the United States. And this is going to be a problem both for the Republican Party, because their big issue is, do they accept him as their leader or not? Do they split or do they unite around him? And it's going to be a problem for the Joe Biden presidency, because Trump will be the 800-pound gorilla in the political arena of the United States, and he's going to cause trouble, as much trouble as he can for Biden, with a view to either standing in 2024 or anointing somebody to stand in his place in 2024. So we've seen this inauguration. Typically, in an inauguration, people travel in from all over the states. There are picnics in downtown Washington. It's a celebration of America. This one, not only in lockdown, but also shops boarded up, heavy police presence. Doesn't that make you sad? It makes me very sad and it's it's going to be a bad advertisement for American democracy and for democracy in general. And if you, if you think that the thing that has followed on from the Cold War is a battle between the Chinese model of society and the Western democratic model of society, a Washington DC with an inauguration like with the National Guard everywhere and things boarded up is going to look absolutely appalling. I mean, I've been to two of these inaugurations uh, in person myself and they are mighty set well they have been mighty ceremonies with all kinds of parties and celebrations and so on and so forth i know i think it was a damp squib an inevitable question what is the state of the special relationship well please 
don't use uh, the phrase <laughs> special relationship. It is a, a I couldn't rela- help it, it. I'm a journalist. I know. I know you are. And, and a very good one at that. My wife is always saying, this, this Liam Halligany reads like a dream. The special relationship is a phrase I have really disliked, abhorred for a good quarter of a century, longer than that, ever since I was posted to Washington in the early 90s and then later on became uh, became ambassador. It is a phrase that has exhausted its usefulness. It had something to say during the Second World War and in the years immediately afterwards, but now it's become a kind of husk of a thing, which actually, believe it or not, the Americans used to you know, sort of beat us around the head with. The outgoing American ambassador in London, Woody Johnson, cannot make a speech without referring to the special relationship, even if he's sort of talking about the price of potatoes or whatever. And we need to get get rid of this idea of a special relationship. This is not to say that there are not areas of cooperation between us and the Americans, which are very, very close indeed, and from time to time deserve to be called special. But if you start from the position of saying, there is a special relationship between Britain and the United States, and oh my God, it's suffering now because we've had a row over this, over that, then you're going to skew your analysis. When Tony Blair realized that having been in an intimate political and personal relationship with Bill Clinton for four years and more, that there was going to be a Republican president in the shape of George W. Bush, he was really worried that his closeness to Clinton would be a severe problem for the Republicans and for Bush. And just before Bush's inauguration, I asked his chief uh, political advisor, Carl Rove, is this going to be a problem? And Rove said, by your works shall ye be known. And what he meant was, you know, if, if our interests converge, it's going to be great. If not, not. And if you apply the Rove test to Biden and Boris, you realize that across a vast range of international issues, we and the Americans are on the same page. So I don't have any fears for British-American relations over the next four years. Isn't that the case, Sir Christopher Mayer, that whatever the personalities or the party affiliations of particular presidents and particular prime ministers, be it Trump, Biden, Kamala Harris, whoever it is, don't the interests of the US and the UK almost always allied or often enough to make it a relationship that if it isn't special is certainly close and maybe unique. The fact of the matter is that, is that the UK is not such a small player. It's actually quite a big player. Last time I looked, the United Kingdom was the single biggest foreign direct investor in the United States, being indirectly, or no, directly responsible for, I don't know, two. I used to say two million jobs when I was ambassador. The two million jobs depended on British investment. And the US, likewise, in the UK. When you look at these things, these profoundly important converging interests. These are the bedrock of the relationship. So John Major didn't get on with Bill Clinton. It didn't matter that they didn't get on because that bedrock was still there. Maybe Biden and Boris will not take to each other at all. I don't think that will happen, but it, in a way it doesn't really matter. What is important here, there are cherries and there are cakes. It's the cakes that matter. And if the two men happen to get on well together, that's the cherry. But the cherry is not essential to the cake. Can they do a trade deal, these two men who don't necessarily get on? Are the commercial interests driving forward for that trade deal, the, the political symbolism? Well, they're so difficult with the Americans doing trade deals. There was a time when I was in Washington, not when I was ambassador, in an earlier incarnation when I was responsible for uh, British-American trade relations. And the Americans were so, so difficult. I think a free trade agreement... Which is, why, which is why Trump's babbling on about it. it's going to be a beautiful agreement and we could do it the day after tomorrow. It's all a load of rubbish because Liz Truss will tell you negotiating with them has proven to be exceptionally difficult. And the reason it's exceptionally difficult is there are so many powerful domestic interests sitting behind the American negotiators saying, don't you give away anything on corn or sheep or whatever. And I don't actually think a free trade agreement with the United States is particularly important because the United States is already our single most important commercial partner in the entire world. And, uh, you know, if we get a bit more trade out of all this, 
it'll help at the margins, but they will ask a big price in return, and it may be a price that we won't want to pay. You just mentioned Bill Clinton. You're a U.S. ambassador from 97 to 2003, the end of Clinton, the beginning of George W. Bush, through 9-11, of course, then the Gulf War. I know you gave evidence at the Chilcot Inquiry in 2009, but what are your thoughts now, looking back at that Gulf War? Well, the second Gulf War, I think, with the benefit of hindsight, proved to be a complete disaster. This, I think, was fundamentally because we accepted the notion that Saddam was in possession of weapons of mass destruction and that he was hiding them somewhere and he wouldn't tell us where. And when he did finally make his declaration at the end of 2002, it was false and then he deserved to be whacked and this was something that the United Nations should have done long, long before. All that we now know was completely wrong. And at the time, I believed that he had hidden stuff left over from the first Gulf War and I was wrong. So we really went, in the end, we went to war on a false premise. And the other, the other catastrophe, which I, I did see coming, and I repeatedly warned the government, was the United States refused to prepare properly for after Saddam. You were also ambassador to Germany, of course. Angela Merkel's led her party, the CDU, since 2000. She's been chancellor, arguably the world's most powerful woman since 2005. Where does Germany stand, that great European power, as she departs the world stage, Sir Christopher? Where does the broader European project now stand? Well, it is a German-dominated project, which probably it has been most of its life. I was ambassador in 1997, which is already you know, quite, quite a while ago. But I heard Helmut Kohl, who was then Chancellor, Federal German Chancellor, say something to a CDU party meeting where I was not supposed to be. And in those days, the capital of Germany was Bonn, not Berlin, just before the move to Berlin. And in the local town next door to Bonn, a place called Bad Godesburg, which is where I had my, my, my ambassador's residence, Cole came to town one day and was going to give a great speech on a Saturday morning. And I thought, I'll go along to that. And the American ambassador was a good friend of mine, said, you can't get in because they're not letting in any foreigners. This is only for Germans. But you see, I, my surname is Meyer, which is one of the most common, it's like mm. Smith. It's amazed they, amazed they let you into the diplomatic service at I all, know, to be honest. I know. It, was an, it, was a na- <laughs> it was a narrow... They wouldn't let me in with a name like Halligan. I was bound to be dodgy. <laughs> you might say that, but I could not possibly comment. Anyway, with, with the name Meyer, with blonde hair... And, 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 and actually, I could speak quite good German by then. I turned up at the town hall in Bad Godesberg, and I just, just said, you know, Maya, and they let me in. <laughs> and the interesting thing was, Cole, speaking to a German audience, said there was a lot of hoo-ha at the time about the single currency, because the Germans were about to give up the Deutschmark and adopt the euro, and they didn't like yeah. that. They didn't that, want, was that was not popular. That was not popular. popular. And they couldn't have a referendum because the constitution we wrote with the Americans doesn't allow them exactly to have exactly to this day. Yeah, exactly right, Liam. And Cole said to his audience, who were grumbling about the oil, giving up the Deutschmark and adopting the euro is the price that we must pay for dominating Europe without frightening our neighbours. And... That, I think, was a sentence which is as relevant today as it was then. Do you think the euro can survive? Do you think it is ultimately a coherent construct? The bond markets don't seem to think so. I'm not an economist, but I cannot see the things that you need to do to make the euro genuinely a single currency. All the, st- all the institutional stuff. I mean, what is economically and financially indispensable to make the euro solid is politically impossible. Yes, it's fiscal union, isn't it? It's one one budget policy. It's, it's one tax and spend system yeah. across the whole of Europe like they have across the US. You have federations with individual states with their own fiscal policies, but they all pay in seriously to a central pot. But they're never going to do that. The electorates are never going to have it, are they? No, I don't think so. I really don't think so. And the euro 
is becoming a real because of all this the euro is becoming a real problem and becomes a all kinds of other things are kind of surrogate issues for this fundamental weakness structural weakness there's that word again in the system and i think it it, it can't last and i'm not quite sure what will what will what will replace it you no know, concentric circles different levels of uh, of adherence to to the euro i just don't, i don't know the answer to that but it it is the biggest strain that the europeans have to deal with you were born in 1944 your father was in the raf sir christopher he unfortunately was killed in action before you were born you went to lansing college then you went to cambridge you're an establishment figure but the reason the public knows you the reason we're having this conversation with all respect is because you are independent minded you are even quite mischievous aren't you i remember your 2005 memoirs dc confidential john prescott who i know you admire he called you a red socked fop <laughs> where does that mischief come from that makes you have the personality that you have that makes you frankly give fantastically interesting interviews like this well one? i've got to say about john prescott he said that american senators called me the red sock fop i ran into john a couple of years later, and he said to me, of course, he said, they, they never said that. I made it up. So <laughs> he, he has a good ear for a phrase, John Prescott. He's... Oh, there's a bloody good phrase. And, it, yep. and it's, it's stuck to me for ever since then. I came from a very modest background, I've got to, I've got to say. And, and when my father was killed in the war, uh, my mother had to go out to make ends meet in an age of true austerity at the end of the Second World War. She put me on the ladder, a great uh, sacrifice to herself which turned me into an establishment figure. But I, I always had this sense that I don't actually belong to this establishment. It first manifested itself when I was about 16 at, at Lansing, as you say, Lansing College, when I decided to grow sideboards <laughs> because at last I had enough hair to shave. I was really proud that at last I could shave. Um, and so I thought I'll grow some sideboards. Peach fuzz. <laughs> yes, exactly. And then I got into real trouble because I bought leather-sided, no, elastic-sided Chelsea boots, which were banned at school, and I insisted on wearing them, and I got into real trouble about that. And that's really, I don't know, it's just the way I am. Actually, it was only when, years later, I became chairman of the Press Complaints Commission in 2003, after I retired from the Foreign Service, and I started going, for the first time in my life, started going round the United Kingdom because I was going to, wanted to talk to editors of uh, regional and district newspapers, find out what, what the heck was going on with the industry outside London, that I saw uh, a Britain of which I was wholly unaware. And it was then that I realized that the education I had had and the career I had had, even if I had, might have been in those terms a bit of a maverick, I was leading a privileged existence which cut me off from the majority of people in the, in, the, in the UK. And it was a very, very interesting and salutary experience. My final question, you were chairman of the Press Complaints Commission, as you said, from 2003 to 2009. How do you think the press and the broadcasters have conducted themselves, Sir Christopher, during this COVID crisis? How, how do you think we've reported it? I, I do... I. It, if you, that noise you hear is me screaming at the television uh, during a Boris press conference when, when there's a whole series of sort of gotcha questions. Look at me and my bookcase. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes. Oh, it, it, nothing, nothing to the sound my wife is making, I can tell you. But I think it is an almost impossible thing to report because it's the biggest story of them all, really. And yet, how do you report it? It is suffused with technical detail and nuance. Every I didn't realize how many virologists, epidemiologists, biologists, uh, all called professor and all coming from universities or august institutes that, that there are. And when Boris said, follow the science, he realized there wasn't a, a science. There were lots of sciences. And uh, although I used to rage at gotcha questions, particularly from television people, I don't see how you could get up each morning and say, so what is the story today? What do we do? What do we report on today? Would you agree that the press and the broadcasters have been alarmist? Would you agree that there's been a failure sometimes to put some of these 
extremely scary statistics in some kind of context? You actually need to have some basic knowledge of statistics and have some some basic training as a statistician to make sense of them, to try and draw the... What I think people want is for somebody to draw the threads together every day and say, well, it's this, that, and that. What does this mean? What actually does it mean? That is rarely done. And, and there has been a leaning towards alarmism because it makes a great headline and an oversimplification of the story sometimes. And in there, there is also the poison of anti-Boris sentiment. I mean, the Brexit wars are still being fought and they infect everything and they have infected, I think, COVID, COVID reporting. So, Christopher Mayer, thank you for visiting Planet Normal. It's a pleasure to be there, if only for half an hour. <laughs> we'll get you an honor, honorary yes, citizenship. The, the Order of the Golden <laughs> Fleece of Normality would do me fine. What a lovely interview, Liam. I mean, such a civilised, funny and refreshingly honest, wasn't he, Sir Christopher Mayer? I particularly liked his image of Trump as the 800-pound gorilla. I mean... If you think about it, that the media's had this love-hate relationship with Trump, haven't they? I mean, Trump has been amazing box office for the media. And uh, although we will all welcome the boredom that uh, a Joe Biden presidency will bring, I think that it's going to be bad in some ways for the media because he's been extraordinary for ratings. I mean, picking up something that Sir Christopher said, Donald Trump got 74 million votes in the election. And that's the biggest vote for any presidential candidate except for Joe Biden. And 65% of Republicans don't believe Biden is the legitimate president. I mean, these are really alarming figures, aren't they, for the future? They certainly are. The, the Democrats obviously now have the three branches of power in the US. They have the White House, they have the Senate, and they have the House of Representatives. But I don't think that means that the Democrats have overwhelmingly prevailed in that there is still this pretty big rump of the American population, well over a third, probably over 40%, who feel really disenfranchised, certainly disconnected with the metropolitan elite, basically people that live on the coasts of America, rather than what some Americans disparagingly refer to as the flyover states. And Trump, whatever you think of him, and God, he was and is a very excessive character and says some incredibly crass and stupid things. But he has tapped into that part of the American demographic better than any president in living memory. He has mobilized them. An awful lot of people voting for the first time to get Trump elected and turning out for him again, compounding the pollsters again and again and again, and coming pretty close, it must be said, to a second term. Joe Biden's victory margins yeah. in some of those swing states were pretty small, you know, mobilizing the black and Latino vote in some parts of the US, completely contrary yeah. to Amazing. the mainstream media narrative. And I think now, with the Democrats having taken the three branches, if we conclude that Hillary Clinton was right and justified to call a big chunk of American voters a basket of deplorables, if we think that that was a useful thing to do and we should carry on doing it now that Trump has been beaten, I think that would be a terrible analysis to take away from this situation. Yes, Trump has lost, uh, and I'm actually quite glad that he lost. Mm. And obviously the civic unrest, the invasion of the Capitol building, the holy of holies when it comes to American politics and society, was grotesque in every way and cannot be reprimanded enough. But Trumpism is not dead by any means. And let's see what he does now. If he doesn't run again, as I suggested he might in my uh, mischievous introduction to Christopher Mayer, then he will certainly have, if not a veto, then a very big say in who becomes the Republican candidate and who takes on Biden-Harris in the next presidential election. I agree, Liam. I think he's, you know, he's going to be continue to be Sir Christopher's 800-pound gorilla. And this 
ban from Twitter concerns me. I mean, I think it was a good idea to shut him up before the inauguration, which, of course, he's so gracelessly was refusing to attend yesterday. I mean, that that's that that's the mark childish. of the man, childish, you know, petty doesn't want to be a loser. I mean, I think his greatest fear, of course, was the apprentice catchphrase, wasn't it? You're fired. <laughs> Imagine the headlines, the photo of him. <laughs> Completely. But this banning from all these social media platforms, isn't that going to drive this festering hatred? As you said earlier, the United States has been separating geographically as well as ideologically into two violently opposed tribes for whom politics has now become this red in tooth and claw struggle. They don't care about due process. They don't care about facts. It's all about fake news. We started the podcast talking about the sort of witch finder mentality, the left expunging anybody it doesn't like, any opinions it doesn't like from social media. I don't, I don't think that's going to end well for a great democracy like the United States. Absolutely not. And I think Christopher May's comments on the Iraq war were pretty astonishing. Yeah. I, I think they should be troubling the, the, the headline writers. It was a complete disaster. We went to war on a false premise. And also what he said about our press here in the UK are leaning towards alarmism and oversimplification in the reporting of this COVID pandemic and the poison of anti-Boyish sentiment and the ongoing culture wars, you know, Brexit battles going on via proxy. I've certainly detected some of that across our media in recent months. Did you notice as well that, you know, there were gleeful predictions, weren't there? Biden's from your neck of the woods, isn't he, Halligan? Bellina, County Mayor, oh, Biden was going to be anti-Brit. Sorry, Ballinar. Ballinar. Ballina. Ballina, sorry, I don't know. I'll get you to do some Welsh place names later. Can you do, actually... You, mm. you were going to do that on Planet Normal a few episodes ago. Right. Any, any proper Welsh-speaking Planet Normal <laughs> listeners, right? I want Planet Normal at telegraph.co.uk marks out of 10 for Alison Pearson's Welsh accent. It's pretty It's pretty damn good. <laughs> but Balinar. Balinar, right, from Balinar. So it was all, oh, yeah, Biden's going to hate Boris. And, and, and lo and behold, we're told that Biden's going to be making his first foreign visit to Carbis Bay in Cornwall for the G7 meeting in June. I'm very much hoping, Liam, that the fact that all these politicians are allowed to fly into Cornwall for, with their, for their buckets and spades, that we'll actually be able to get a little holly in them. Um, in the, in, over the summer as well. but You know what will happen? We'll still be in lockdown, but only one part of Britain will be zoned, you know, tier one. They're going <laughs> yes. to the Silly Isles. There you go, Silly Isles. Any Silly Isle listeners to Planet Normal, brace yourself because the whole world is coming to you. I actually was Googling holiday cottages on the Silly Isles. And I mean, you get, you seriously, you get a cheap, a cheaper place in the south of France. I mean, it was absolutely yeah. for this like two up, two down, like mini grand a week. But um, no, I think that that Sir Christopher's absolutely right. And I think the, the Boris hatred, it manifests itself now in a, a talking down of our international prospects. But we're seeing that things, things are going very well. We had um, Theresa May this week lambasting Boris for, you know, damaging our reputation for good faith and so on. I I think that I personally think nothing, nothing could be further from the truth. I think the damage to Britain's reputation would have been far, far greater had we not implemented the result of the biggest expression of British democracy in our history, the June 2016 referendum. What would that have done to our reputation as a democracy, as a society? as a model of governance to much of the rest of the world. So on to our reader emails, a selection of the messages that you've sent to us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Thanks so much for the many messages you send us. They're informative, moving, honest, funny, particularly when they're about Halligan. And, <laughs> and we really do learn so much from our listeners. Please keep them rolling in. One that jumped out at me this week came from Lindy on that thorny topic of the NHS. What an unholy mess we're in as a country. No wonder our mental health is going down the toilet. A continuing sense of politicians out of control and a health system that couldn't cope before the pandemic, let alone now. 
having worked myself across many health-related agencies and operated as a lay health inspector, the problems are so deep-rooted and arise from so many different factors. It's not hard to see why politicians find the NHS quite impossible to reform. No cross-party groups, commissions or any other bureaucratic structures will do this and will only cost more and waste more. Population, demographics, multiple chronic health needs now make it hopelessly ineffective, short of root and branch reform, requiring decisions that would be resisted, spat out and reviled. One medium-term measure we could take would be to close or merge the multiple costly and often ineffective agencies, regulators and other healthcare system hangers-on, saving billions, and pump this into treatment and resources on the ground. Public Health England, CQC, NICE, NHS Improvement. The list is endless. They are filled with civil servants doing little to improve the quality of care and could be pared down beyond belief. That would be a great first step. The NHS was conceived by a Tory after all. Well said, Lindy. You know, Alison, I would defend probably as... The ultimate political ideal, I would defend the right to free at the point of use healthcare for all. Mm. Absolutely. I believe in it with every fibre of my being. My concern is that the NHS is now so unwieldy and so inefficient that it is actually sullying the idea of free at the point of use healthcare because there must be much better ways to deliver it than an organisation that employs over a million people. This is an email that caught my eye from Kieran. Thank you, Alison and Liam, for continuing to provide myself and many others with an alternative view, countering the daily doom porn <laughs> and, <laughs> and sensationalism we see and hear on our television every night. I found Planet Normal extremely reassuring over recent months. My grandmother's 90, has dementia and has been in a care home since June last year. Since then, she went rapidly downhill due to a lack of contact with her family. She tested positive for COVID and has been confined to her room for over six months, even though she's shown no symptoms whatsoever. We asked for another test, as this was clearly one of the many, many false positives. But our request was refused by the home on the advice of Public Health England. By the time we see her, if we ever do, my greatest fear is that she will no longer recognise me or her great-grandkids. A woman who was once a strong matriarch of our family has been left as a weak, frail, confused lady who now may well die alone with none of her family around her. Thanks again for Planet Normal. Oh, goodness, Liam. How many people are in that? <laughs> how can you move on from that? I mean, God. No, I know. Well, this is interesting from Anthony making an international comparison. The NHS is broke in every sense of the word. My wife spent the last 12 months getting steadily more ill, no proper diagnosis or treatment, a breakdown in communications between the GP and the hospital. Exasperated, exhausted and depressed, she went to Russia to see her mother and get a second opinion. A week of tests and then finally a proper diagnosis and a treatment plan. She can now eat and drink, sleep and is getting back to normal. In Russia, where they have the third highest COVID problems after the US and Brazil, they have separated out their specialist and treatment clinics from COVID treatment centres, so their healthcare system continues to work regardless. There is something very wrong with the NHS, and it comes down to political manipulation by the hard left, trade union and professional bodies at odds with each other, top-heavy management who consistently fail and yet reward themselves with huge salaries and pension pots while leaving the front line without time to cull. Now, if there are any Planet Normal listeners who know about what's happened in in hospitals in other countries during this period, I'd be really interested because the fact that Russia has separated out its COVID and non-COVID care, something I feel really passionately we should have been doing here. And other countries don't seem to have discontinued non-COVID care. So if, if anyone has any information about that, please get in touch with us. This is from Jonathan. I've used the time offered by the latest lockdown to fact check the government's reasoning using ONS figures. It turns out the average age of death from or involving COVID-19 in the UK is 83 on ONS figures. So we should be protecting the vulnerable while letting the rest of the population get back to work and get on with their lives. Lockdown has had a devastating effect on my own extended family, says Jonathan. The businesses my younger brother and sister have built up over the last 30 years have been destroyed and they're both struggling to keep things together. My older sister, 
who has had a successful career in the city, has been isolating and living on her own since last April. She succumbed to deep depression. She stopped eating and now risks losing not just her job and her home, but also her life. Alternative strategies for the prevention and treatment of COVID-19 are being made, but are not being heard. All the best to you both, and please continue with Planet Normal. All the best to you too, Jonathan, for your heartfelt email. I think that brings us back, Liam, to what we were talking about at the beginning, wasn't it? Is these accusations about us doing damage, endangering people. Yeah, let's well, just shut people up, shall we? Let's just not read out their emails. Let them just write into a void so no one's listening. You have to give the public a voice. You have to give people who are upset a voice. Well, This email from Elle, I think this sums up what we would say in rebuttal to those people. Elle writes, I am an avid Planet Normal listener and have found your podcast of great comfort in a time that doesn't make sense to me. I felt compelled to contact you to tell of my experience as an expectant mother who has experienced two miscarriages in the last year, one during the summer of last year whilst COVID-19 restrictions on visitors were still present at hospitals. I had to attend multiple hospital appointments and scans alone and lose my baby alone while my partner had to wait outside in the car. This, as you can imagine, caused us significant psychological distress. I am now pregnant for a third time and extremely anxious. Due to recurrent losses, I was allowed a reassurance scan six weeks into my pregnancy to check on baby's health and to try to ease my worries. And due to political pressure that was mounted at the end of last year, I was allowed to have my partner present. Articles published in the mainstream media on the 16th of December said a woman's chosen support person should be considered as an integral part of both the woman and baby's care throughout the pregnancy and not as a visitor. They should be able to attend appointments at the early pregnancy unit and all scans. Well, that was until last week. I experienced bleeding and was offered a scan to check on baby. I arrived at this scan today with my partner terrified and anxious, only to have the trap door open from underneath me when I was told I was no longer allowed my partner present. Oh. The hospital changed its policy that Monday and didn't see fit to tell anyone, when only last week he was fine to come in. This sent me into a panic attack and caused enormous distress. I would go so far as to say that this sudden change in policy that was dumped upon us put me and my baby at significant risk of harm due to the severe stress it caused. I no longer find myself able to be understanding of this being due to COVID-19 and a rise in cases as this is a disproportionate stripping of human rights. The solution to me seems to be far worse than the problem. My partner and I are from the same household. We pose the same risk. He is the father. He has rights too. Thankfully, all was well with the baby and we continue on our pregnancy journey, but we do so with apprehension and distrust in those who will care for us and our baby as we continue to be treated as collateral damage to a disease that is now endemic. I cannot tell you, Alison and Liam, how let down we feel by the NHS. This toing and froing, inhumane, managerial decision made by people who have no experience in the matters in which they make decisions. They are a disgrace. I can only hope that more people speak out who are in a similar position to me and we can put pressure on these managerial robots. I have complained to the hospital and have written to the Human Rights Committee to share my experience. May this cruel treatment end as soon as possible. Best wishes to you both, Elle. It's absolutely devastating. There is no more vulnerable citizen in our country than the unborn child. And this baby's parents are being treated like that because of what? What's, what's, what's the reason for that cruelty? It's just... I can't even bear to read it out, but we will go on reading them out. When we look back on this period, do you think we will look back on the astonishing cruelty by agents of the state? That, that, that's my fear. It's my fear too. That's it for another week, listeners. <laughs> our sanctuary oh, of sweet reason, our refuge uh, of reasoned views and absolutely staggering correspondence from our listeners but don't worry we'll be back for another trip next week and between 11 and 12 noon on thursday morning the day this podcast is published 
Alison and I will be responding to your comments as ever on the Telegraph website. Go to the Planet Normal article at telegraph.co.uk. The link is in the show notes to this episode. And Telegraph subscribers can leave a written comment and you can read our replies. Sorry, it's been a bit of a bumpy ride this week. We got quite emotional, didn't we, Liam? Yeah. If you enjoy our trips to Planet Normal, please leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple iTunes. We've got some such lovely comments and they can't all be written by Halligan and his family. Large an, army of, an army of paid <laughs> comment writers. <laughs> if you leave a review, that will help many others to find us. So spread the word, tell your friends. And if you don't know how to leave a review, just write to us at planetnormal at telegraph.co. UK and we'll tell you. So as we speed away from our beloved planet normal, our thanks as ever to our producers Reese Gunter, Louisa Wells, Nellyat Lampitt, and our editor Theo Leludis. Stay safe, stay in touch with us and with each other, keep smiling through the lockdown. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.